Well, good morning, church. On December 1st at 1.08 p.m., I received a text from our beloved Pastor Ty. He said, hey, we're doing this series on John 14 and 21. Here's three different months. Could you teach on a Sunday morning? The last two I couldn't do, the first one I could, which was this morning. But before responding, he said it'll be on John 16, 1 through 15. So I went and I talked to my wife. I prayed about it. I didn't respond to him for a day because along with teaching a Bible, I'm a speaker. This is what I do. But I only speak on subjects I feel really equipped and passionate about. Looked at John 16, thought this is awesome. Wrote back to him. I said, count me in. I love that passage. Here's my response back. Great. But the text has shifted a little bit. <laughs> You'll be teaching on John 15. So I'm disappointed. I start to read John 15 and think this is so rich. I think it was a blessing in disguise. So we're going to look at John 15 this morning, continue our series. If you want to open up your Bibles and follow along, that's great. If you can't find it, it's right after John 14. (laughs) Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, John. But it will come up on the screen as well. Now, while you're turning there, what's critical, anytime we read the Bible, is to remember the context. So the passage before, actually as a whole, Jesus is speaking to his apostles night before his arrest. So the words he speaks has an even deeper sense of gravity. Now the end of 14, it's interesting. In 1431, Jesus says, Father, rise, let us go from here. They were in the upper room discourse and scholars are divided whether they stood up and he gave this speech as they walk through Jerusalem as he looks at the vines Or if he's saying, all right, we're going to leave soon, but they stayed in the room. So we don't exactly know where this happened, but we know Jesus is speaking to his disciples. But then the passage that comes after this is also very interesting. This passage we're going to look at is about abiding in Jesus, developing fruit, and experiencing his love. The passage after it is about being hated by the world. So look at the passage after it very quickly. In 15, 18 through 20, Jesus says, if the world hates you... Know that it has hated me before it has hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So this passage, I think, is about abiding in Christ, becoming the people Jesus wants us to be, so we can face the persecution and hatred of the world that hated Jesus, how do we respond in love? So let's take a look. Uh, John chapter 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Now what's interesting is the vine is one of the most common motifs in this ancient culture at this time. And there were only three fruit plants that could survive the drought. There was the fig, olive, and the vine. But the vine required the most pruning, most watering, caring, tending for it. It required a lot of attention. Now, in the Old Testament, the vine referred to the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was seen by the Jews as the true vine. But whenever Israel is mentioned as the vine, the emphasis is on Israel's failure to produce good fruit. So from the moment Moses led the people out of Israel into the desert, they start grumbling, to the book of Nehemiah where they've settled in the land and rebuilt the temple. 
It's essentially a story of God's chosen people who failed to produce the fruit that they were designed to produce. The whole purpose of Israel was to make God known to the world. I mean, in my all-time favorite story in the Bible, David and Goliath, David is just about to attack Goliath. Goliath calls him name, and David, probably a 14-year-old boy, talks trash back to this man who's been trained his entire life. Here's what he says. He says, you come to me with a sword and spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth. Now here it is. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. That's the purpose of Israel, to bear fruit, to proclaim God's name to the world. So when Jesus shows up and says, I'm the true vine, what's he saying? He's saying the vine is no longer a nation I am working through in the same fashion. Now, if you want to be connected to God, you have to be connected through me. I'm the true vine. Verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so it may bear more fruit. So which branches is God the Father going to prune? Okay, this is the participatory part of the program. Which branches is the father going to prune? There was a lot of answers in that one. He's going to prune all of them. If you don't bear fruit, he says you are cut out in a sense. If you do bear fruit, you are pruned. Why? So you'll bear more fruit. You see, sometimes we suffer and we hurt and we go through difficult times and our initial reaction is God why are you abandoning me? God, why is this happening to me? You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that God disciplines those whom he loves. I mean, that's why we discipline our kids, hopefully, because we love them. And we want them to be all God designed them to be. If you're going through suffering, the question is not, does God love you and care for you? That's not the question. The question is, will you respond in faith and trust believing that God has your good and his good in mind if you'll just believe him. I play basketball at Biola University, and I know what you're thinking, but you're short and you're white. <laughs> and you can't jump, which proves only one thing, there must be a God. I didn't really play my first couple years. My junior year, a little bit. My senior year, I was a captain. I played every game. The beginning of my senior year, my coach started disciplining me in a way he didn't before. You know what I knew instantly? Now he thinks that I matter for the success of this team. Right? He realized, oh, you better take care of the ball. You better get better on defense. Because I was going to bear fruit for the team. All of a sudden, I mattered in a way that when I was a bench player, didn't matter for the success of the team. In a sense, that's what God does. He disciplines us. Now, in this passage, just in this verse, the word fruit shows up three times. So what's meant by fruit? I think essentially what is meant by fruit is it's the qualities of Christian character. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Here's part of the point. You can do acts of goodness. You can do acts of kindness in your own power because you're made in the image of God. But we can only be truly good. We can only truly have self-control. We can only truly act from kindness when it comes from Jesus himself. We can't be good in our own power. So here's an interesting question as I read this. Why does a gardener prune a vine? Why? Well, one, because it needs the fruit, but why else? You know why? Because people in that culture would judge the farmer or the owner based upon the state of the vineyard. People walk along the street, look and see a vineyard that's shabby and it's not cared for, they make a judgment about the farmer. They see one that's cared for and it's tended well, they make a judgment about the farmer. Look, you and I do the same thing, don't we? You go out at break to get some coffee and you see some unruly, godless children running by being loud. What's your thought? What's your thought? You don't have to say it, but it's where are those parents? What are they doing, right? You see a dirty car out there. It's like, why don't they care for the car? Somebody shows up not dressed away. We think they should dress. What do we do? Look, it's human nature. It's human nature. We all do it to varying degrees to judge people by appearances. So Jesus is saying, God prunes the vineyard, which is us, because the world we live in is going to make judgments about God based upon looking at you and based upon looking at me. That's powerful if we stop and think about that. Now verse four says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit for apart from me you can do what? Nothing. Now, by nothing, it doesn't mean the kind of nothing when a teenager opens up the fridge and says, Mom, Dad, there's nothing in here. When they say there's nothing in there, what's actually in there? We live in Orange County, probably a lot of food. What they mean by nothing is not the particular food that I want. Jesus is not saying, yeah, you can accomplish some things apart from me, but if you want to be really good, then come to me. He's saying, no, you can't accomplish anything, no thing of real merit, of real fruit apart from me. And that should be humbling, isn't it? Because it's human nature when we accomplish something to think we're pretty great. But Jesus is saying, no, you should have a sense of humility that only the things we accomplish in terms of fruit are God working through us. So if our purpose is to bear fruit, and we bear that by abiding in Jesus. The question is, what's meant by abiding? Do you know in this passage, the word abide or an equivocation shows up 11 times? When something is repeated, it's pretty important. When something is repeated, it's pretty important. <laughs> when something is, okay, I'll stop. 11 times. So if we can only bear fruit by abiding in Jesus... The obvious question is, what does it mean to abide in Jesus? The passage before that Pastor Ty read last week answers this. He says in verse 14, 20 through 21, In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Notice a couple things. When we're abiding in Jesus... 
This isn't this mystical union like in Star Wars. Okay, by the way, how many of you have seen the Star Wars movie yet? Most grossing film of all time, hands down. How many of you have seen it twice or more? Mm, All right. In that movie, it's like you connect with the force, right? It channels this energy through you. That's not what Jesus means by abiding. Abiding is a relational sense where we're in obedience to Christ. Now, as Protestants, this makes us nervous, doesn't it? What do you mean I abide in Christ by obedience? Because we want to emphasize faith and not salvation by works. But Jesus is saying here, we abide in him by obedience. Now look, think about it this way. I've been married to my high school sweetheart 15 years. The moment she said, I do, we were married. Look, I got, this is actually a Superman ring. I don't want to point to my Superman ring, my wedding ring to prove it. That shows it. Now, the moment we got married, did I say, hey, I got the ring you said I do. I can live however I want to. No, that'd be foolish. I might be technically married, but that would, that would not be any kind of meaningful relationship. I actually had a dream this week. You ever have the dream where you remember your friends from like elementary school? I had this dream that all my buddies from like first grade, third grade, junior high were there. And I saw this girl who was my girlfriend in seventh grade. So I told my wife, I said, hey, I had this dream. And it was my girlfriend from seventh grade. She gives me this look like, uh-oh, where is this going? I said, well, here's what happened. I walked up to her. I saw her. I said, hi. Haven't seen you in a long time. She goes, oh, it's not me. Turns her back and walks away. I said to my wife, I said, well, what do you think this means? She said, I think it means you're finally over her. <laughs> I said, that's not what it means. And she gives me a look like, where are you going with this? I said, I'm not finally over her. I was over her the day I met you. Boom. <laughs> and you know what her next thought was? Your lines don't work on me anymore. You're going to have to do better than that. But honestly, I mean, as funny as it was, you know any human relationship with your parents, with a coach, with a coworker, with a neighbor, if there's not truth and honesty and rightful obedience, you can't have a healthy relationship. You can't. It's not possible. If that's true with humans, how much more is that true with God? How much more is that true with God? Let's keep going. Verse 6 says, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. I remember reading this when I was a sophomore at Bible University. I played basketball on this team that went to South Africa, and we were studying this passage in depth. I remember reading that going, wait a minute. If we have to abide in Christ by being obedient, if we're disobedient, we're cast and thrown in the fire? I said, that means if I disobey, do you lose your salvation? I mean, that's a pretty weighty question, isn't it? That's a pretty weighty, important question. Now, to be honest, as you look at this passage, terms like cast out and burned are terms that are used for judgment. That's what they indicate, that God is judging somebody, usually for eternity. But I do think if we say this passage teaches that if you disobey, you lose your salvation, I think it presses this analogy too far. So in John six thirty seven, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So you know what I think the point is? 
True disciples will persevere to the end. True disciples will persevere to the end. If someone does not persevere to the end, that person was never a disciple in the first place. Case in point, Judas. So if a branch is cut off, it was never really connected to and a part of the vine in the first place. 1 John 2.19, John says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. True disciples will persevere to the end. Let's keep going. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Did you hear that? You realize Jesus just gave us a blank check for whatever we want. So ready? Let's pray. So we can just stop worrying about this building campaign that $30 million will just fall down, land on the altar, and we'll be done. Who wants that? Let me see your hands. Yeah, that'd be nice, right? That'd be a pretty nice deal. Now, we all know theology's uncertain channels, which teach if you just ask for something, God will give it to you. And if he doesn't give it to you, it's because you lack faith. That's an unbiblical, hurtful false understanding of the gospel. And this is why theology matters. I wrestled with this this week, and here's how I think the best way to make sense of this is. Let me ask you a question. If you are truly abiding in Jesus, how will this affect what you pray for? If you and I are truly abiding in Jesus through obedience, how is that going to affect our prayer life? I sent out a tweet this week when I was thinking about it, and I wrote, the nature of your prayers reveals much about the state of your heart. What you pray for reveals, I think, the sp your spiritual condition. I came across a commentator named Gerald Borchard. He said, to this verse, the means that the model of Jesus in life, this means the model of Jesus in life and the word must permeate the life and words of the disciple. When this happens, praying ceases to be selfish and asking, selfish asking, and it becomes aligned with the will and purposes of God in Christ. That means if we are truly connected to the vine in obedience, then the source of Jesus comes through us and his will becomes our own. And we get what we ask for because our will is aligned with his. I think that's what Jesus is teaching. In fact, think of the Lord's Prayer. Listen very carefully to how this starts. I want you to count the number of times you hear the word your. Are you ready? Jesus says, then pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, and then what? Your will be done. You notice how this is a theocentric prayer? Jesus is saying, if you want to learn how to pray, don't start asking for yourself. Start by submitting yourself to God's will, whatever that is, even if we know it or not. And then when our wills are aligned with God, he starts to change our desires. He changes our wants and gives us whatever we ask for because our wants will be so aligned with what God wants for us. 
I think that's what Jesus is teaching in this passage. But he goes on, he says this. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So this whole passage is about Jesus is the vine. We abide in him through obedience so we can bear fruit. Now he's saying, what's the purpose of bearing fruit? And it says that we prove that he's disciples. Now let me ask you a question. Who does it prove to? Who, do, who does our fruits prove to that we're disciples? Is it God? Do we prove to God that we are disciples by our fruits? No. Because God already knows whether you're a disciple or not because he knows the state of our hearts. Who does it prove to whether we're a disciple or not? The world, everybody else. It's everybody else. So this raises an interesting question. If our fruit proves that we are truly connected to the vine and that if you're really in the vine, you'll have fruit, does that mean that works are necessary for salvation? This is a huge debate, but let me, just, let me just hit on this for a second. Okay, James 2.24 says, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. According to James, faith and works. Paul says, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Wait a minute. Does the apostle Paul contradict the brother of Jesus? Who are you going to go with, Paul or the brother of Jesus? That's a tough pick. I don't know. Or maybe we're not understanding the depth of what's happening here. See, it always has to do with the context. When Paul says you're justified by faith, he's talking about justification before God. We are justified before God vertically in terms of our salvation by faith alone, not by anything we can do. James is talking about how our faith is justified before other people. Other people can't see your faith. Other people can't see your heart. What can they see? Your actions and your works. So are you justified by faith or justified by works? It's both. But it depends on what we're talking about. So I think Jesus is making the point that James made. He's not talking about our justification before God. Jesus is saying our works provide evidence to people that we are true disciples. So Martin Luther had a famous illustration about an apple tree. He said, it's not the apples that make something an apple tree. The apples are the fruit and the product of the kind of tree that something already is. So if you're really an apple tree, and you have the right nurturing, etc., you will produce fruit. If we truly are disciples of Jesus, we will see that fruit manifested in our lives. I think that's what Jesus is teaching here. But then he says this in verse 9. It says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. In case reading this so far you're thinking this is about commandments and doing and actions, we're missing the point. What two words jumped up in this? Love and joy. The whole purpose is that we experience the love and joy of the Father. It's not about the commandments, but the commandments are the way that we experience God's love and God's joy. 
You see, this might strike us as being odd because we live in a world that says, you're basically God of your own life, right? I ask my students, I'm at Biola full-time, but I'm still part-time at Capstone Valley Christian Schools. I often ask them, I'll say, can you define for me what my students, how would you define freedom? You know the most common answer I get? Freedom is doing whatever you want to do. In other words, we tend to see freedom as freedom from something, from a boss telling me what to do, from rules about how I use my life, from rules about how I use my body or my time or my money. I'm free if nobody, no one, there's no external authority how to live my life, I'm the God of my life. That's how we see freedom. I think that's a disastrous, mistaken notion of freedom. I think freedom, we are only truly free when we live consistently with God's design for our life. You're only free when you embrace who you are, the truth of what God says, and live consistently with it. So Os Guinness said it beautifully in, in, he said this, he said, "Real real freedom depends on knowing who we are because we're most free when we are ourselves. G.K. Chesterton says that we can free a tiger from its cage, but we can never free it from its stripes. Stripes are part and parcel of the tiger. We can free the camel from the zoo, but for heaven's sakes, don't free it from its hump. The hump is part and parcel of being a camel. In other words, we have to discover the truth, the character, the nature of what something is in order for it to be itself and to be free. We need to know the truth of what it is, and without truth, there's literally no freedom. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying you are only truly free to experience love and joy when you're connected through me, the vine, to the Father. When you embrace God's truth, God's design for your life, and you're obedient, then you're truly free. Then Jesus says something, my favorite verse in this passage, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You know what the number one search term was in 2012? On the internet, worldwide, the number one phrase that people searched for. Three words, what is love? And they weren't looking for the song by Hathaway. What is love? Baby, don't hurt. That's all I'm going to (laughs) sing. Every time I sing, my son is like, Dad, save it for the message. Look, when people put in what is love, they're not looking for a song. That tells you something about the human heart, doesn't it? The most pressing, important question when it's all said and done is we want to be loved and we want to love other people. That's at the heart of being human. I came across this article, very interesting. It's called What is Love in the UK newspaper, The Guardian. And there were five theories and they called it the greatest emotion of all. Now, by the way, when they say five theories on the greatest emotion of all, what are they assuming that love is? That it's an emotion. Well, they've diagnosed it wrong before they even asked the question, but that's a separate point. They interviewed the physicist who said love is chemistry in your brain. The psychotherapist said love has many guises, emotion, experience, sacrifice. The philosopher says love is passionate commitment. The romantic novelist says love drives all great stories. You know, Jesus didn't just give a theory of love. 
He didn't just give an idea about love. He said, here's what love is, and he modeled it. He laid down his life for his friends. You know what I think is powerful about this? I think whether we've thought about it or not, when we reflect upon what we know to be the greatest act of love, we know this is true. How do I know it? Because I've seen the recent movie Inside Out. You're thinking you just went to Disney and Pixar? No, look, it's also in Big Hero 6. This is a movie, if you haven't seen Inside Out yet, you've had enough time to see it, so I'm gonna ruin it for you. You've had enough time. It's basically a movie about a troubled 12-year-old girl and there's these characters in her head that are controlling her emotions. And there's a character, Joy, that needs to get to central command to help her experience joy again. But Joy falls into this pit, which is kind of reminiscent of a hell-like state where you're gone forever. And Joy can't get out of it to make the 12-year-old girl happy again, which means she's destined to just be sad. Well, they remember from the girl's memories this old little wagon that if you sing songs, it flies. So this Joy and this imaginary character, Bing Bong, find this wagon and they're trying to get up this huge crevice and they sing these songs, it gets up, it falls short, it falls short, and it falls short because the wagon is too heavy. Then finally, Bing Bong gets an idea. On the last one, they're flying up towards the top, they're almost there. Bing Bong bails out, bails out. And this wagon just makes it. The moment I saw that, number one, my wife was crying, which was great. I thought, what a powerful demonstration of love. And you see this imaginary character just disappear, gone forever. Isn't that what love is? I mean, shown for a kid, the greatest act of love, because the greatest thing we have to give is our life, is to lay down our life for a friend. Jesus didn't do it in a mythical story. He did it in real life. And he says to apostles to follow after him. And then one of the last verses says this. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You know, we think about God in many terms. God is our King, He's our Redeemer, He's our Creator, our Savior, Master, Judge. But Jesus just introduced a new term. A new term that makes Christianity shocking compared to the rest of the religions in the world. You know, in Islam, you can't consider God a friend. God is distant, and he's a judge, and he's powerful. His will is done, period. Don't question him. Eastern religions, Buddhism, and Hinduism, you can't call God a friend because there is no personal God. In the Old Testament, basically, Abraham and Moses were referred to as the friend of God. That's it. Now, Jesus is saying to his disciples, and by implication, all his followers, you too are a friend of God a friend of God. Now, I love this because we live in an age where friendship is cheapened, isn't it? When I was growing up, I probably had six or seven friends. Now, I have over 5,000. 5,000 friends on Facebook. 40,000 friends on Twitter. They're all my friends. Why? Because friend doesn't really mean anything, does it? You know what's amazing? I, I, I read a study just this week that said 
the more time a young person spends on Facebook, the more they tend to think that other people are happier than themselves. Now, I'm not against technology. I think it's good in some ways and bad in another. But what happens when you look on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook? Everybody's smiling, their lives are great, and oftentimes you're not there with them. And neither am I. I actually think we have more ways to connect relationally than ever before, but I think our relationships are more shallow than they've ever been. The heart of what it means to be human is to love God and love other people. And Jesus says, you can be a friend of God. The source of goodness, the source of where love comes from itself, we can be a friend of God, why? Because Jesus bridged the gap through his death to pay for our sins. In the Old Testament, they couldn't approach God. Now we can approach God and know him personally and directly and be called by him a friend. That's, that's radical and amazing. Jesus ends by saying, these things I command you so you will love one another. What's he doing in this passage? He's basically saying, let me just sum it all up for you. All this about the fruit and the vine and abiding is essentially this, that you will love one another. And when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of the law? What did he say? He said, love God and love other people. So let me just end by asking you some questions to bring this home. Let me sum it up and ask you some questions. Essentially, Jesus is saying this. He's saying, look, you can do nothing apart from me. You can do nothing. He's saying, it's not the nation of Israel. It's not something else. He's saying, I'm the true vine. I am the only way you can truly be connected to the Father. He goes, if you abide in me through obedience, I will bear fruit through you. Why? Because the life you live will testify to the world about who I am. You can do individual good things in your life, but you can only truly be good with the source of self, Jesus, who's the only person who's ever lived who never sinned. So if you're a Christian and you've been following Jesus and maybe you're hurting, maybe you're going through a difficult time, maybe you're going through a pruning period, the question for you is this. Not does God love you. That's not the question. That's a given. If you follow after Jesus, he loves those who are his. The question is, will you trust and believe that God is good and know that he might be working something even more deep that you can see and realize that he's pruning you, disciplining you because he loves you? If you've been in Christian circles in the church your whole life, and felt like your life has just been one successive frustration after another, and you're not seeing any fruit, let me ask you a question. Are you living in obedience to Jesus? Are you living in obedience to Jesus? Maybe you've had a frustrated Christian life because you have never truly submitted yourself to the Father through Jesus Christ and experienced the freedom and the abundant life that comes with knowing the only source of goodness and truth. If that is you and you have not 
bore any fruit. Maybe today is to ask yourself the question, do I really know Jesus? Is there some sin in my life I have refused to submit to him that is keeping me from experiencing the goodness that Jesus has in store for me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this church. Thank you for the people that are going here. We do pray for your guidance. We pray for your wisdom as we have a lot of ideas of where we want to go with this church and in a way that we pray will bless the community. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for disciplining us, as difficult and painful as that may be. Whether we feel personally pruned or not right now, God, just give us the strength to love and follow you no matter where we go so we can be a light to a broken and a hurting world. And we pray this in your name. Amen.